Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or random phone number that keeps calling you, Truthfinder has you covered. You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. Truthfinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man who has mad hits like Rod Carew. He is the captain. Oh, how I miss Adam Yalk, the genius that is Adam Yalk. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening, and thanks for telling a friend. Our friends over at Flying Monkeys Craft Brewery would like to remind us all that normal is weird, and that's why this week, Captain, we are drinking Killer Cupcake Panda. This is a wonderful double IPA brewed with pandan leaves and saber hops. It's got a bit of a sweet finish to it, which I like, chasing the bitterness. ABV 8.3% garage grade, four and three quarter bottle caps out of five. And this week, our fridge is loaded up thanks to our good friends. First up, we have Sophie, Ash, and Alba, all from Shipley, England. Yeah, and monkeys might fly out of me bum. A big shout-out to Amanda in Johnstown, Ohio. Look, there's one of those monkeys right now that you're talking Ooh. about. <laughs> Next up, we have a cheers to Melissa in Montgomery, Texas. And a big shout-out to Daniel on Poway. California. Next up, we have Irene all the way over in Wellington, New Zealand. And last but certainly not least, we have Piers sending a long distance greetings from Qatar. Thank you all for filling up the fridge for this week's show. If you want to help us out with next week's show, go to truecrimegarage.com and click on the donate button. While you're there, the captain says, check out the store page. The captain and I finally got our very own True Crime Garage hats. Yeah, we are now proud owners of the hats. We didn't get but, them the first time around because they out. sold out. They sold <laughs> out again. <laughs> I who knows, who knows? But we got our hats, and that's all that matters. Make sure you follow us on social media: Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at True Crime Garage. Make sure you check out our bonus weekly show, Off the Record. It's off the hizzy. <laughs> It's off. <laughs> it's off the hizzy, but it's on the Stitcher app. Yes. So check that out. That is enough of the business. Everybody mm-hmm. gather around. Grab a chair. Grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. It took almost two years to find the remains of Heather Church, and the crime scene where the remains were found offered no clues as to who the perpetrator of this abduction and murder could be. The Daily Sentinel ran an article with the headline, Girls' Remains Found After Two-Year Search. This from the Associated Press. The article labeled Timothy Belbeck, the man who found her skull and reported his findings, as a transient camper and states the death was ruled a homicide, and the coroner's report indicates Heather suffered blunt force trauma to the head. 
This article has some interesting pieces of information in here as well. It goes on to say Heather was last seen wearing white cotton pajamas and no shoes. She had laid out an outfit for school and her bedding was rumpled as if she was asleep until something had awakened her. Enter Lou Smith. Who is Lou Smith, Captain? He's a detective that likes to climb in and out of windows. <laughs> He's probably best known for his involvement in the John Bonet Ramsey case. I think he's on the smaller side too, Captain. That might make give him the the extra super ability of climbing in and out of windows. You think so? I I don't think he looks small to me, but he, I didn't either. But I read some story where he decided when he first became a police officer, he needed to bulk up because he was like, I want to say he was like five six to maybe five seven, but like a hundred and fifty pounds when he first started on the force. He got into some situation where he said a, a large woman was attempting to drag him across the street and she was having some success. And that's when he decided, I got to start going to the gym. I got to beef up if I'm going to be. Yeah, I think that cop. was my mother. <laughs> well, you know, I like to use the term super cop. Lou Smith is certainly a super cop in his career. He worked on more than 200 murder cases in which a suspect had been arrested and tried for their crimes. He was a detective with the Colorado Springs Police Department. He joined the force way back in 1966 and worked his way all the way up to the rank of detective. Lou helped to get the arrest and conviction of spree killer Freddie Glenn and his accomplice Michael Corbett. Glenn was found guilty of murdering three people in 1975. Yeah, one of them being uh, Karen Grammer. That's correct. This included the killing of Karen Grammer, younger sister of actor Kelsey Grammer. He was also involved in the arrest and conviction of Michael Corbett. This was Freddie Glenn's accomplice. So together, we have Glenn, who was found guilty of murdering three people in 1975, Glenn and Corbett together were responsible for a total of five deaths in and around Colorado Springs back in 1975. So now I would like to introduce you to another man, John Anderson. Now, I'm not talking about money in the bank and Seminole Wind, John Anderson. No, I'm talking about the John Anderson who I will deem to be another super cop. Anderson was sworn in in January of 1995 as El Paso County's new sheriff, and with him came Lou Smith. Anderson wanted two things. One, for Lou Smith to take over as captain of detectives in El Paso County. And two, to solve Heather Church's case, which by this time, 1995, was looking like it would never be solved. In the over three years of the case, law enforcement really only developed, per the evidence in interviews, a few suspects. Some of the members of Heather's church at one point turned on one another. Heather's Sunday school teacher and a family friend were questioned extensively. As were Heather's parents. Everyone police in the FBI looked at either had an ironclad alibi, passed a polygraph test, or both. Again, this included Heather's parents, Diane and Mike. Definitely a lot of suspicion towards the parents. I think when you have a case like this, where you have no leads, no clues, that's mm. kind of where the direction that it just naturally takes on. Yeah. Now, in 1995, Lou Smith took over as captain of detectives, and he took over the Heather Church investigation. Lou is pretty old school, and he said that regardless of what other people thought that they knew about the case, Mike and Diane Church were not suspects. He said he knew very early on in his investigation that they together nor separate were involved in any way. After meeting them both and speaking with them separately, Smith believed they were truly victims and far too good of people to do something so terrible. And it's not clear whether or not they took polygraph tests and passed or not, right? 
the information I have that came from the sheriff's department states that they did. Okay. Now, Smith also offered up, after speaking with the parents, he offered up some of his expert opinions on the case to the parents of Heather. He told them he would catch the man that killed her. He said he believed the perpetrator was an intelligent male and that his name was already in the case file. He also believed, unlike the FBI, that the motive behind why the perp entered the church home may not have been sexual. Smith wanted to start his investigation at the very beginning. In reviewing the case, he noted the recovery of fingerprints from the crime scene. Captain Schmidt recognized that although the prints had been forwarded to both the FBI and the CBI, he was aware that there were, in fact, 92 separate automated fingerprint identification systems, or APHIS for short. So here we are once more, Captain, at the latent fingerprints left on the master bedroom window screen from inside Heather Church's house. Yeah, it seems like that's the biggest piece of evidence we have. Forensics expert Thomas Carney was the man who educated Smith on the trouble with the fingerprint systems. In fact, Carney, he came from Miami. He worked in law enforcement in Miami. He was the first person to compile a list of the APHIS systems in the United States, Canada, and Mexico. In short, North America. As said, this number, as of 1995, was 92 of these systems. Carney put together 92 sets of black and white photographs of the prints that they found on the window screen. And this was to be mailed off to all 92 automated finger printing identification systems. In March of 1995, they got the call they were waiting on for years. So sound the trumpets, Captain. We're, we're still working on the trumpets here at the garage. That was good. Taking lessons. That was good, but I mean, we, we need some actual real trumpets. Mm-hmm. Uh <laughs> They got a match. In fact, they got two matches, one in California and one in Louisiana. So 92 of these different places, they send off these photographs. Two of them call back and say, hey, we got a match for you on those fingerprints that you sent us. Mm -hmm. The fingerprints were matched to 42-year-old felon Robert Charles Brown, who lived at 16660 Eastonville Road, and he was one of the church's nearest neighbors. He lived in a double wide about a half a mile from the church's home where he lived with his wife. Brown worked a tree farm located on his property where he lived. Brown was arrested for burglary and vehicle theft in Louisiana where he served 10 months. He was also charged with something in California and I believe he may have served a little bit of time there, but his record, he has a record, but it's for nothing nearly as heinous as abduction or murder. In 1987, his parole was transferred from Louisiana to the state of Colorado. The fingerprints found inside the crime scene at the church's house were submitted and resubmitted over the years to the Colorado Bureau of Investigation. But for whatever reason, when Brown, when his parole was transferred, his prints were never entered into the CBI system. So even though they're checking them, there's nothing there to match them to. Four days after they got the match, they arrested Brown outside of a store in town and brought him to the station for questioning. The first thing that they wanted to know, of course, did Brown know the churches? He said no. In fact, he said he was a loner and he and his wife did not socialize much. But we know they're neighbors. Yeah, but he lives a half a mile away. Right. So, again, it's when we talk about these different cases, it's important to always kind of keep in mind the lay of the land. They own that big property. He owned a decent-sized property as well. He was what I believe is reported to be their nearest neighbor, but that's half a mile away. They really wanted to know, had he ever been to the church's house? And this would be for any reason at all. Right. No, he said. 
In fact, mm. the closest to their home that he had ever been was when he assisted a delivery truck that broke down on the side of the road near the church's long driveway out to the road. That is exactly what they wanted to hear. Got him. Got him, Captain, right? Got him. Yeah, because if if this guy was known, if Robert Brown was known to do like handiwork in the area, and they go, hey, were you ever in their house? Oh, yeah, well, I, was, I wasn't friends with them, but I, I did some painting for them. Right. Oh, where did you do the painting? At? Oh, master bedroom, the other bed. You know what I mean? Right. Like then it put it gives you a, it gives a reason why the fingerprint should be there or could be there. Yeah, and really, that that is so key to this case, as you just stated. He has given no reason at all for his fingerprints to be there, let alone be inside of the home. Well, mind you, the, that's because he's a dumbass. Where where the prints were found were found technically inside the home. Yeah, because the, here's the thing: is they ask you about your neighbors, you, you know that this girl was abducted, right? Mm-hmm. So if you just start lying and saying, "Well, yeah, you know, I went over there a couple times," mm-hmm. and and I'm sure they asked the the family, and and I'm sure they didn't, but. I don't know. That'd be covering your ass a little bit. Let's get into that a bit because this part of the story is quite interesting, I think. Really, when they arrested him at this store, that was not their intention. They actually wanted to set up, um, they wanted to catch him, meaning they wanted to get him in a conversation, asking him questions about the church homicide and and catch him that way, but catch him off guard, meaning that the, that he doesn't know that they are looking specifically at him. Right. So once they get the match on the fingerprints, their idea is, okay, let's send a handful of officers and detectives out into the area and let's knock on everybody's door again. And let's ask these sets of questions. That way he thinks it's all, this is just all routine. You know, we're, we're doing a return routine questioning of everybody in the area. We're not specifically looking at you. Right. This is where they were hoping that he would say, I've never been to their house. And the problem was when they sent all the officers out into the area, he was already under surveillance at that point. He left to go shopping. And at some point they got nervous. The law enforcement got nervous and said, we have to arrest this guy. They were really worried that when they place him in cuffs and say, look, you're being arrested for the murder of Heather Dawn Church. Right. That, as you said, he's a dumbass, that he would wise up and go, oh, yeah, I I was there to do mm-hmm. yard work or whatever. Yeah, I babysit him. Yeah, because yeah. even even if the church has said, no, that's not the truth. That's now he you, said, she said. You, yeah, you have his word against theirs. Yeah. Now, the reason why police believe that he wasn't smart enough to come up with with something like that. Yeah. No, actually they think that, that he was so convinced that he never left his fingerprints there. Mm. Meaning they believe that he was wearing gloves during the abduction and he may have taken them off very briefly to replace the, the screen. Right. And very likely he's being questioned about this three years later. He remembers that he wore gloves to the crime scene, but doesn't remember taking them off for a very brief time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So he's so surprised by this whole deal of him leaving fingerprints there that he tells them straight up, he's he's without a lawyer at this point in the questioning. And he's telling them, there's no way possible that those are my fingerprints. He said, I don't doubt that you found fingerprints there. I doubt that they're mine. And they say, well, we have your fingerprints back from when you were arrested in Louisiana and we, we checked them. They got a match in Louisiana. We got a match with your old fingerprints in California. He goes, well, that's well and good, but people make mistakes. My fingerprints could have been mixed up with somebody else's. You know, what, you, right, what you're right, testing right. are pictures. He's saying, take my fingerprints right now and test them again because I'm telling you my fingerprints were not there. Right. That's how adamant he was. And they did so. And they checked it again. Right. So now you have that in your back pocket as the detectives are questioning uh, Robert Charles Brown. Yeah, and during all of this, remember he's he's asking 
for everything to be tested again. Take new fingerprints. They're doing all this stuff. Test it again. And while they're doing this, they talk him into a polygraph test. Yeah. And later he's told he failed the test, and he's told again, doesn't matter how many times we fingerprint you and run the test, they're still matching the set that we found on the window screen at the church's home. Right. The other thing, too, Captain, is during these interviews, while they're being conducted, the police were at Brown's home. They're searching the place. They already had a search warrant before they arrested him. There they found girls' clothing and girls' jewelry stuffed into a pillowcase. He has no children. Mm. This is a bit unexplained what this stuff was or where it came from. What is explained is that none of it belonged to Heather. They yeah, also it's go probably, It's probably trophies of some kind. Wow. Yeah. So they found stolen items from another home that was another residence that was kind of nearby. Mm-hmm. So these could have just been things that they don't have to be from another murder victim. They could be things that he stole from somebody's home. They found this is just straight up bizarre. I've never heard of this before, but I do know people steal these types of things. I've just never found one in any of the cases we've covered. They found a stolen Bobcat earth mover machine worth $18,000. Now, Captain, you and I both know that is not a small machine. Mm -hmm. That's a large thing to have stolen from someone. Apparently, I don't know why he stole it. He must have used it for some kind of work. Keep in mind, he had that tree farm. He had a big plot of land. There's some suspicions as to what he could have used it for. But his his wife was aware that he stole this large machine. She said he used it. The only thing that she knew that he used it for was he dug a big hole with it, drove the machine into the hole, and then attempted to cover it up. <laughs> Attempted to bury it or just B- cover it up? Bury the machine. <laughs> uh, as said, he, they found stolen items from another house or other residences in the area. This is, uh, you know, the, some of the more alarming stuff. They found newspaper clippings, a lot of them, regarding Heather Church's case. Mm-hmm. He was, in fact, arrested that day and charged with murder. He would be offered eventually, actually pretty quickly after the arrest, he was offered a deal, an offer to his public defender. This would be so he could avoid the death penalty. And this likely may have been the best case scenario for the investigator, seeing that at this point, when they make this offer, all they have, as far as evidence goes, is his fingerprints. Right. Later on, they did get Brown's wife to admit that he was not home the night Heather vanished. So we have a fingerprint and we have no solid alibi. Correct. Now, he, Brown, maintained his innocence when he spoke with the police, but he did ultimately end up pleading guilty to murder. This so he could avoid the death penalty. In trade, he got life in prison. This move was quite interesting the prosecutor they didn't really think that that brown or his attorney would take the bait take the plea deal right because again such little evidence they really made a strong push and what they did was they were vetting this guy they were calling where they knew he was from this guy had moved around a lot they called his hometown where he lived for a long period of time and realized that former neighbors of his, one of them had gone missing and one of them was murdered. Oh, great. Both of those cases unsolved. In fact, the missing woman... On, they, on, top, of, on top of Heather Church's case. Correct. Yeah. And so what their threat was, we'll call it a threat, their threat to the, the defense attorney was he, he should probably hurry up and plead guilty to this before we find another body. Right. So ultimately that's what took place. The prosecutor did check with Heather's parents first to make sure that they were okay with them making an offer. Heather's mother, Diane said, if he is willing to plead guilty, she is willing to let him sit in prison for the rest of his life. 
The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited-time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, 
you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, welcome back. Cheers, everybody. Cheers, Cheers. Crispy Colonel. Ooh, cheers to you through the glass. The crispiest. They've separated us. I feel like I'm in solitary confinement. Oh, that's where you belong. All I, I can't see you. All I do is hear voices. Mm -hmm. So while Robert Brown never confessed to the detectives and never confessed in court, it's believed that he confessed to Susan Lawrence. This was his placement counselor, and. What he told her, she passed along to authorities. So let's go through this, what, what she told the authorities he said to her. She said that he, Brown, enjoyed roaming his neighborhood at night looking for houses to burglarize. Sometimes he would take things. Sometimes he wouldn't. When he went to the church's residence, there were two lights on inside the house and no cars in the driveway. And he did not think that anyone was home. He was surprised by Heather church inside the house and killing her. He says was unintentional. Brown said that he did kill Heather inside the home. He placed one hand over her mouth and one hand on her neck. He demonstrated this to miss Lawrence when he's telling her this story and said he recalled doing this for only a couple of seconds, he thought, but now believes it must have been for a longer period of time. He assumed that he had strangled her because she was dead when it was over. Mm -hmm. Now, Mrs. Lawrence asked Brown if it was possible that he had broke her neck, and to which he replied that that was a possibility. Yeah, because, I mean, Brown's a pretty big guy. He's like 6'3". Roughly, yeah. Yeah. Robert Brown said he placed Heather Church's body in the back of his pickup truck and drove to the mountains where he disposed of the body. He denied having any sexual contact with Heather Church. All right, so bam, boom, bang, case closed. Yep, Moving get my, on. Get my coat. Yep. Time to tip my hat and ride. Nope, you're... You're locked up. <laughs> You're right, Captain. That is not it because there's much more to this story. In 1996, Robert Charles Brown, who is supposed to be rotting away in his cell in Colorado State Corrections, he receives a letter. This is an anonymous letter. The letter says, you got screwed. And here's why. There was something wrong with Colorado State law. And from July 9th, to September 20th of 1999. Motherfucker. I was good up to September 20th. Of 1991, Colorado was without a death penalty. This is truly bizarre. We've never come across anything like this in any of our cases. Mm -hmm. So what that means is when the night when she was abducted, when Heather was removed from the home. Technically the state 
of Colorado for that very brief time period, less than 90 days. Didn't have the death penalty. Does not have the death penalty. So the offer then of, hey, plead guilty and we take the death penalty off the table, it was never on the table because it didn't exist during right. the, the time frame in which she disappeared. Bullshit offer. Yeah, so this gets pointed out to him, and now we have the appeals process. But who, whoever's pointing it out to this scumbag? Yeah, why is, just is also a scumbag. Let it be. You man. got screwed. Well, good. Right. Unless it was one of those things where um, the guy was trying to rub it in his face. You know, like you're so stupid, oh. you didn't know this. Oh, you know what I mean. But you know but what? You got screwed because the case took so many years to apprehend somebody. Right. I don't think that the prosecutors did anything malicious here. I don't think they were aware either. No, like you said, it was a small window, like 90-day window. Yeah, it's just one of these weird inconsistencies, one of these weird little glitches that was that was going on. They're unaware of it. So any, anyway, now we have the appeals process. He's got a pretty damn good appeal when you think about it. Hey, I pled guilty to something that only because the death penalty was being thrown in my face. In the face. In the yeah. face. Well, the current prosecutor, the the one that now has to face these appeals, comes up with a great plan. He says to the court system, look, she was abducted on the 17th. This whole thing with, with the no death penalty expired on the 20th. That's just a couple days later. Mm-hmm. He's also saying it took us all this time to solve the case. She was found over 20 miles away from her home where she was abducted. We, the prosecutor's office, believe that the crime was sexual in nature, that the motive was sexual in nature. And based off of all of that evidence and theory and thought, it is our argument that we cannot say for certain that her murder occurred on the 17th that it's very likely he may have kept her for a couple of days and the murder occurred on the 20th or even later. To this, the appeals courts, at least two of them that I could find, they agreed with that. They said, look, you can't prove the date of when she was killed. And if you do, you know, he's in all kinds of trouble and all kinds of mess here. Because now if you go back to... um he proves what day she was killed. Then he proves that he killed her and he boom, he still ends up with life in prison. Right. So I, I think that's just truly fascinating. And the, the prosecutor later came out and said, look, I thought my argument was a good one, but a weak one. It was intelligent argument, but it was a very weak one. He thought that they would lose. Turns out that they win. This thing got all the way up to, I believe the Colorado Supreme court state Supreme court to which I think they tossed it out and said, we don't even want to look at this thing. Truly, when you have a child killer, nobody wants this guy to get out on some kind of technicality. Well, yeah. And on top of that, you think he's possibly linked to other crimes. That's correct. And that's still not the end of our story, Captain. Because on March 30th, 2000, Robert Brown sent an unsolicited letter to the 4th Judicial District Attorney's Office in Colorado Springs. The letter was addressed to whom it may concern. Inside this letter, and I don't have the full letter itself, I don't know if the full letter has ever been released to the public, but there is within this letter a statement from Brown that says, this is very cryptic, Seven sacred virgins entombed side by side. Those less worthy are scattered wide. The letter taunted investigators claiming the score is U1, the other team 48. The obvious reference here being that he was arrested, tried and convicted of the murder of Heather Dawn Church. Right. They scored one. The other team must be him, Robert Brown. He's got a score of 48. So obviously he's implying that he's involved in other crimes, possibly other murders. Another statement included in this letter says, if you were to drive to the end zone in a white Trans Am, 
the score could be 9 to 48. That would complete your home court sphere. Uh, this guy's a real dumbass. Brown closed the letter by demanding that he not be contacted. Now, there was a second letter that was sent Wait, as well. On. So he sent a letter, and then at the end he said, don't contact me. And here's and another then he, letter. Then he sent another letter. Yeah, the second letter, from my understanding, I believe even less of that letter has been uh, uh, reported over the years. Maybe maybe even some of the statements I just read could have been from the second letter itself. It's all very cryptic, his writings, and what has been released is it's not clear if it's if some of the letters are just short and they were released in their entirety, and then other letters were longer and only bits and pieces were actually released. But what we do know with the second letter, there that one included a map. And we would later learn that the map was, he took a piece of paper, put it over, over a map like in an atlas, and made the outlines of several different states. And so he outlined the state of Washington, California, Colorado, New Mexico, Oklahoma, Texas, Arkansas, Mississippi, and Louisiana. And inside each one of those states that he outlined, he put a number. This number totaling up to 48. So almost indicating that within inside this state, for instance, state of Washington, he wrote the number one. I've killed one person. In the state of Colorado, he put the number nine. In Louisiana, the number being the highest of all the numbers was 17. Mm -hmm. This captain, I believe, probably would have went nowhere because he's writing to the district attorney's office in Colorado Springs. They don't seem to have any interest in corresponding with inmate Robert Brown. Turns out that about two years later, a man named Charlie Hess is going to send a letter to Robert Brown. He doesn't know that Robert Brown has in fact sent these letters already to the district attorney's office. Charlie Hess is a former CIA agent and he was working with a guy and I say working, they were kind of doing this as, as a hobby, but Charlie Hess along with some other individuals were working with Lou Smith. All these guys were pretty much retired by this time. What they would do is they would get together about once a week. They would hang out. They would eat pastries, drink coffee, smoke cigarettes, and they would talk about old cases. Mm -hmm. And really what they were focusing on was they were wanting to take on some cold cases. All of these individuals were involved in law enforcement or the CIA at some time. This would be a good group of people to volunteer to take on a cold case. Now, during some of their discussions, it comes up that one of the individuals wants to know, hey, Lou, or anybody here in our group, has anybody worked in putting away a murderer that they believe was truly a very dangerous person that was was a serial killer, was one of these um, people that had numbers, you know, multiple murders that they had committed. Lou Smith says to his group, I always felt Robert Charles Brown was a serial killer. And so much so that when we were working to put him away, we were aware that way back in Louisiana, a neighbor of his, one went missing and another neighbor was found dead, was found murdered. So there's already a bit of a connection. I, I've seen a lot of people cover this portion of the story. And a lot of people have done a good job in doing so, but what is usually lost in this Heather church's case is usually kind of a, a by the way, or a way to kickstart the whole story of Robert Brown and his communications with these cold case volunteer investigators. Right. And Often it's reported that Lou Smith just had some kind of sixth sense that he was, uh, it was a gut feeling that he had been working the, these types of cases so long that he just had a sixth sense that Robert Brown was a serial killer. He had a, he had a sense that Robert Brown was a serial killer because they were aware of 
a missing former neighbor of his and a murdered former neighbor of his. Doesn't take much to, you know, you don't have to have a, a sixth sense to come up with that. Heather Dawn Church was a neighbor of his as well. So you see a similar type of MO. It's really a bit of a shame that when we talk about these cases from Louisiana, I find it strange that within just a handful of months, these two cases take place. We have a murder. Somebody goes missing. Both of these individuals were neighbors of his, but they were neighbors within the same apartment complex as him. And further, Robert Brown worked as the maintenance man for this apartment complex. His brother, I believe, was the owner or the landlord of these uh, apartments. It's really strange to me that they weren't able to make any type of connection. I think with the missing woman, with her case, that the husband was under suspicion, and that would make an obvious reason why you wouldn't connect them. But with, with the missing woman, she apparently had the doors, had the locks on her doors changed the day before by the maintenance man of the apartment complex, who in fact was Robert Brown. It seems like there would have been a connection to some of these individuals. Yeah, and even though Robert Brown claimed that he didn't want to be contacted, there would be a bunch of corresponding emails for years. Yeah, well, letters. Right. And so it's almost like Charlie Hess kind of befriended Robert Charles Brown and got him to open up. We have a man who says he doesn't want to talk. It is in Charlie's arsenal, though, that he is aware that, look, this is the guy that opened up the dialogue. Mm -hmm. He started the dialogue. On some psychological level, he does want to talk. And so I'm going to work that angle and see what I can get from him. It's interesting that you have a guy, a serial killer locked up. And I will, I will say serial killer because I believe him to be just that. But we have someone like we've seen so many times before. Now he's coming out playing this game of, I know more than, you know, and here's all the other bad things that I've done, but I'm not going to tell you all the bad things that I've done. I'm going to hint and nudge and wink you through it and you got to figure it out on your own Mm -hmm. it's all really truly i mean it's a lot of it i feel is bullshit and i don't really want to waste anybody's time here by going through all of the correspondence because as you said this goes on for quite some time and really all charles hess wants to do is he wants to sit down and speak with robert brown face to face That's what Charlie Hess did in the CIA back in the day of the Vietnam War. He was somebody that interviewed people during wartime. He gave lie detector tests during wartime. He is extremely good at communicating with people, getting people to open up, getting people to tell the story, tell the truth, and figuring out what are the truths and what are the lies inside their story. He eventually, through befriending or at least letting Robert Charles Brown believe that the two are friends, got Brown to allow him to speak with him face to face. And this, all it did was open up correspondence because Brown was giving little hints and winks and nudges saying, I've killed roughly like you said, Captain, I've killed 48 people, 47 of them you don't know about. And some of their talks and correspondence He had the number as high as 51, but he was really giving them nothing to go off of. He's like, look, um, they keep telling him, you got to tell us more. If you want us to clear any of these cases, we can't do anything with this. And if you don't give us more information, we don't think you're serious. We think that either you're making this shit up or you've lost it and you believe it to be true. And it's not true at all. Mm Mm-hmm. Eventually, they get him to talk and give more details on some of these cases where he will go, you know, maybe give a nickname of an individual, maybe give a spot where he uh, dumped the body, so on and so forth. And this leads them to, throughout months and years of working on this, this leads them to starting to complete some of the story. 
Now, mind you, all of the states that he listed that he drew on that map, he did live in those states and they could find evidence that he, in fact, lived in those states at one point. And the three states that he listed as having the highest number of kills, interestingly enough, are the three states where he spent the most time. So there was some stuff. There was some meat on the bone in the beginning for these investigators to believe that there could be some truth to Robert Brown's story. Now, we know with these psychopaths and these narcissists, none of this would come without him getting something in return for offering up this information. He was unhappy with the way that he was being treated. He did not like where he was being housed. And he also didn't feel that he was receiving proper medical treatment. Basically, he wanted to transfer. And again, Charlie Hess pushed him and said, we can't help you unless you help us. Eventually, through a lot of back and forth and through a lot of working and a lot of hard work, what we end up getting is we get another solved case. Because in July of 2006, Brown pled guilty to the murder of of Rocio Sperry. This, he was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole for 40 years. Now, unfortunately, this did not come without Brown getting something in return. Brown was then transferred to the state of Minnesota to serve out his time there. What's very weird here, Captain, mm-hmm. is I found an interview with Heather Church's father, Mike. And I believe it was from 2015 or 16 where he had a complaint and a very valid complaint. He's saying because of Brown's manipulation of the system, because he's working these deals to get moved and, and plead guilty to an unsolved case, that he did not know where the killer of his daughter was being housed. And he felt that that was unfair. And I agree 100% because at some point Brown was moved and it wasn't public knowledge to know where he was located. I found a letter that is believed. I have plenty of reason to believe that it was written by Robert Brown, where he states that at that time he was housed in Florida, in the state of Florida. And there he is complaining that they reneged on the plea agreement, that he was supposed to be in Minnesota. And after being in Minnesota for four years, they transferred him to Florida where he does not want to be. And I hope he stays where he does not want to be. Welcome to Florida. (laughs) The thing, Captain, that we have here, and I do want to say I am very... um, The thing that I want to say here, Captain, is that I think that is great the work that Charlie Hess, Lou Smith, and all of their little cold case volunteer work that they did is fantastic. Yeah. I don't want to say it's all bullshit and it's all for naught because they did get a conviction in the Rocio Sperry case. And that was so important, not just to get another case off the books, not just to get some answers, but for so many years, her husband was thought to be the one that was guilty of her disappearance. And we now know that that's not true. Mm-hmm. And that guy was a victim himself, not just from being the husband of a of murder victim, but he was a victim of being thought of as being guilty of her disappearance and her murder for so many years. So I'm very glad and very happy that they got that one off the books. I do think that a lot of Brown's communication and a lot of what he hints at we talk about a number of 48 possible victims. I think that that's total bogus bogus. I think it's a bogus number that he came up with. We're talking about, he's saying this in the early two thousands. And at the time, I believe a number of 48 would put him at the highest number for a serial killer. That's who he wants to be. He's never been anybody important. He wants to be somebody important And he does not mind the attention. Why? Because he is so guilty of Heather Don Church's murder. And now he's locked up in a place he does not want to be for life. And he has nothing to do. He is, to put it quite frankly, he is bored. 
everything that he did when he was on the outside, a lot of it being illegal, a lot of, of it being perverted, deviant behavior, he cannot do now. And so he's come up with some kind of game to pass the time. He's come up with a number that makes him important when he is not. I also think that part of this game is he feels screwed by the prosecutor, by the district attorney's office of Colorado. That because he, as you said, was dumb enough to, one, not give a good reason why he would have been at the church's house. Mm Mm-hmm. Two, didn't lawyer up. Three, agreed to a polygraph test in which he failed. And then four, pleads guilty so he can avoid the death penalty, yet there was no death penalty. Yeah, so welcome to Florida, dumbass. I think he feels tricked because he was he was an idiot. He was stupid. He was a moron. He feels tricked. And now his way of retaliating is to send them on this wild goose chase. Keep in mind, who did he direct his letter to? He didn't send it to the media. He didn't send it to the El Paso County Sheriff's Office. He sent it to the district attorney's office, the same district attorney's office that was able to put him in prison for life, for the death, for the murder of Heather Dawn Church. Now, I do believe within inside this 48, this magical number of 48, Captain, I do believe that there are some other victims in there of note of, of, of note of ones that he actually provided some detailed information. This would be the, uh, murder of Catherine Hayes from Louisiana, Wanda Hudson and Faye self also of Louisiana, Melody Bush and Nydia Mendoza, both from Texas. And then Lisa Lowe, who was killed in Arkansas. So while I do feel that a lot of his stuff is probably bullshit, I would love to see some further movement on some of these other cases where there was some detailed information provided by Robert Brown. Unfortunately, Lou Smith has passed away. He passed away. He had uh, cancer. And by the time the cancer was founded, it spread to his entire body. Yeah, but I agree. A lot of good work here. And uh, Robert Charles Brown deserves any bad thing that's coming his way. The other thing about his, if you want to try to call them confessions regarding these murders, even the ones where he offers detailed information, what you will see is him minimizing his involvement, him minimizing his role in the murder of these individuals. I personally believe that most of his murders, if not all of them were sexual in nature. They, they seem to be that that was the motive, the driving force for his actions. I don't know about when he set out to enter the home to Heather Dawn church's house. But what I will say here regarding his, bullshit confession that he offered up to his placement counselor. What do you see there? Straight up minimizes his involvement in the whole situation. It makes it, it's all so confusing to him. He killed her. He didn't even really know why he killed her. He didn't, he didn't intend to kill her. And I think that is absolute BS. I think that there's a lot of evidence that will show that there was no reason for him to remove her from that house his confession somewhat makes it sound like she surprised him and he reacted and before he could realize what was going on she was dead there's evidence to suggest that she may have been sleeping when he came upon her that night right and if he was afraid or got scared all of a sudden because he entered a home that he thought was empty and he reacted and that was the result you just can't believe that because if she was sleeping, he had the opportunity to be afraid and then leave the home after he was in the home. And when he left there, the only thing that was missing from that home was that little girl. A lot of really good sources for this case here, captain, one of the better ones, is the newspaper, the Gazette. They covered this case 
pretty extensively over the years and did a very good job. One of the best sources is this week's recommended reading. It's a book titled The Devil's Right-Hand Man, The True Story of Serial Killer Robert Charles Brown. You can write that title down now so you can pick that up and find out more. If you're busy, just go to our website later. Go to our recommended page. Go to truecrimegarage.com. We will have that title there for you so you can make that selection and add that to your library. We want to thank everybody for listening. We want to thank everybody for the wonderful five-star reviews. We want to thank you all for telling your friends about True Crime Garage. Until next time, be good, be kind, and don't litter. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.